Welcome to the Living Faith Fellowship Conference podcast. The Living Faith Fellowship is a peer network of like-minded churches united under a single biblical authority and one common mission. You're about to hear a message from one of the many conferences hosted by the Living Faith Fellowship every year. We pray it's a blessing. Well, you probably noticed um, I don't follow my pastor in everything. Um, I walked up steps. So if I tried that, I would pull a hamstring, uh, ACL, it's over. But very impressive, Sam. Very, yeah, very impressive. So uh, you got it. So, you know, my wife asked me earlier, she asked, what, what day is it? You know, I, I had to stop and think, you know, because it's, it's, you know, it's conference week and you just lose track of time and days. And so I think it's Tuesday, right? Yeah, I think that was the answer I gave. Uh, let me just say, I know I speak on behalf of MBT. Uh, thank you. You guys do a fantastic job hosting. The hospitality is so warm. The fellowship is so sweet. Uh, what we're doing over at the barn, man, it's just a great time. And uh, there's some just things we can learn from you all about just hosting. And uh, you do just a great job. And so thank you. It's been really, really, really sweet to be a part of that. I know everyone can't make it in the morning sessions, but that's been incredible. It's so cool what God does. You know, I, I didn't uh, have a conversation with Alan or Steve about what they were going to be covering. I just trusted the Lord to make it all work and fit. And, man, he's done a great job of that, of course. And it's just been outstanding to sit and glean. And, wow, that's really neat. And never saw that before. And thank you, Lord. And um, but if, you know, you can get online and get that, I think you'll get the most out of this if you go and get that too, starting with Sunday morning with what Troy covered that I believe just laid uh, just a great foundation for everything that I think we're seeing this week in the morning and evening session. So uh, it'd be well worth your time to, to go back and listen to all of that. I'm sure it's recorded. So with that, we'll pray and we'll trust the Lord again tonight. Uh, to see what he would have us to see, and to once again take that and run with it for his glory. Lord, thank you so much. Just what a beautiful day. What a beautiful day that you have made. What a beautiful day that you've given us the opportunity to be a part of, to know you today, closer, deeper, sweeter than we did yesterday. And thank you for that. God, you are once again so wonderful today, so good today, so faithful today, so kind today, so loving today, so merciful today, and we just say thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to sit once again at your feet and just hear you, to hear what you would say to us, and of course, Lord, we will trust you uh, to run with it to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it would be good. We've covered a lot of ground in the mornings and, of course, in the evenings, just to review in terms of what we've been looking at so far. And what we're doing is we're looking here in Second Chronicles chapter 5 at the dedication of the temple, the house that Solomon built for God's glory. And as we're walking through that, we're just trusting the Holy Spirit to make some, some simple but critical observations about worship. And we're looking to, to, to see those things, to give us a visual of what a dedicated house of worship needs to look like to God. And so we're trying to make those, those connections in our own personal life. So we started by talking about the heart of worship. 
which we said is the total dedication of self to God in response to who he is and what he's done for us. That really is the catalyst that this is what provokes us. This is what moves us to worship. You just sit and think on who God is. That in and of itself ought to move you to worship in spirit and in truth. But then when you look at what he's done <laughs> and what he does, it, I don't know how you can't. And then we talked about the focus of worship being bringing glory to God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and just how critical it is to not just be in a personal relationship, relationship with him in position or in standing, but in practice, where we are personally walking with him. It is an intimate, real relationship that is faithful. I get it. We're all flesh. We all have our moments, but as a rule, as a body of work, this is how we're walking. This is how we're living. And then we talked about the leadership of worship. What is true regarding the heart and focus of worship must be exemplified in and led by men. That's got to happen. That's got to happen in the home. That's got to happen in the church. And then we talked about the preparation for worship. Worship is too critical to God for us to approach it in a very cavalier, unintentional way. We've got to be very, very correct and intentional in our approach and our preparation to worship God in a way that brings him glory. And then last night, we focused on the theme of worship, which is sacrifice. Uh, You can't worship God in spirit and in truth cheaply. You just can't. It's got a cost, and that is where God gets the most glory. So we continue in Second Chronicles chapter 5. We're going to look in verse 7. If you haven't made your way there. Verse 7 says, And the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord unto his place, to the oracle of the house, and to the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubims, For the cherubims spread forth their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubims covered the ark and the staves thereof above, and they drew out the staves of the ark, that the ends of the staves were seen from the ark before the oracle, but they were not seen without, and there it is unto this day. So the priest placed the ark of the covenant in the most holy place, under the wings of the cherubims. We see that. Now, according to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, the earthly temple in Jerusalem was a pattern after and a figure of the heavenly temple. So the cherubims that we see here were made of gold, and they were symbolic of the angels after the order of the cherubims. See that very clearly. We understand that Lucifer was the anointed cherub of God. Therefore, he was the highest ranking angel that there was at the time. Now, with that said, if you want to know (laughs) just how dangerous pride is, and if you need any motivation to absolutely despise it and do everything you can to not give place to it, just look at Lucifer. To be in the position that he was in, to have the access that he had, to be able to see the things that he saw and fall because of pride 
says this is something that I should want absolutely nothing to do with. If it can do that, if it can provoke someone to respond the way that he did, given what he saw and what he had access to, I think I'll pass. Listen, pride will absolutely wreck you. It will wreck you. Seraphim, on the other hand, are only mentioned by name, at least, twice in Scripture. We see that in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2, and Isaiah chapter 6, verse 6. That's not to say that they are insignificant. It just points out the fact that when you consider that Lucifer was the anointed cherub, and that it was cherubims who were placed in the Garden of Eden to guard the tree of life, and when you think about their emphasis in the most holy place, it does convey that cherubims are a very high-ranking order of angels. We see that very clearly. And so what we learn as we observe them in Scripture is that the ministry of cherubims is presiding over the presence of God and guarding the interest of God. I mean, this is their ministry. 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 16 says, And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord, And said, O Lord God of Israel, which dwellest between the cherubims, thou art the God, even thou alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. Psalm 80, verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock. Thou that dwellest between the cherubims, shine forth. Now, as we begin to narrow the focus tonight... Uh, There's something that I believe is is very critical for us if we are to continue plowing and and getting what God would have us to get to be the kind of dedicated house of worship that he would have us to be. The cherubims that were attached to the mercy seat, when you look at that, the mercy seat that covered the ark, clearly they were facing each other. But in the temple that Solomon built and dedicated, consider what we see here in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. And the wings of the cherubims were 20 cubits long. One wing of the one cherub was five cubits, reaching to the wall of the house, and the other wing was likewise five cubits, reaching to the wing of the other cherub. And one wing of the other cherub was five cubits, reaching to the wall of the house, And the other wing was five cubits also, joining to the wing of the other cherub. So the wingspan of each cherub was about 15 feet. I mean, these were big. And so the image is that the Ark of the Covenant was placed under these two freestanding cherubs, cherubims that is, in the most holy place in the temple. And since one of their wings reached each wall, and their other two wings came together and met in the middle, the image is very clear that they would have been stretched out facing outward. Again, the cherub that covered the ark on the mercy seat were facing inward each other, but these two are spread out this way. So just think about it. When the high priest entered the most holy place on the day of atonement, to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on and in front of the mercy seat, looking out at him, facing him, would have been these giant cherubim that were covered with gold. 
Now, I understand from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, and other places that angels desire to look into the things that have been revealed to us, and I get that. But I don't believe that is the primary focus here or that is the primary message here. Symbolically, these cherubims were presiding over and guarding the presence and interest of God. And so as the high priest stepped beyond the veil into the most holy place, this is what he would have been seeing. I mean, this would have been very clear. And I think it's safe to say that every step that he would have take or took would have been one of fear and trembling. And this is serious, which is the only way to approach God and worship. So not only were they watching over the throne and presence of God, but they were watching the high priest who approached it. Be careful. Our focus now is the gravity of worship. The gravity of worship. We have to see this. Listen, the weight and responsibility of worship is enormous. It's enormous. We laid the groundwork for this last night in looking at the preparation for worship, but the gravity of worship amplifies how serious worship is to God and how serious it must be to us. We do not want to err here. With that said, I want to give you three areas where we are vulnerable to err in our worship. And it was really affirming today as I was sitting and listening to Alan, I thought, oh, the Holy Spirit sent him the same email. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Now, I will say, uh, I, I think Alan uh, was a lot more sharper. And so, again, if you really want to get the you know, if you want to get a fuller picture of what I'm about to share with you, go back and listen to Alan. Uh, it was superb. So I'll do my best to, to, to try to give you just kind of a dumbed down version of that. But, but I never, I didn't talk to Alan. We didn't coordinate this, but clearly the Lord wants us to see this because uh, this will probably sound a little bit familiar. But one of the areas that we tend or we are vulnerable to err in when it comes to worship is liturgical. When we are too liturgical, we can worship our style and order of worship as much as, if not more, than God himself. We can. My wife uh, grew up in independent Baptist fundamentalism. Uh, her father was a pastor. Her grandfather was a pastor. Most of her uncles are pastors. So I guess it was, she was destined to marry me. And I'm glad that she did. So would you have married me if I wasn't a pastor? Well, actually, I wasn't a pastor. So I guess that answers that, doesn't it? Maybe you saw some potential. I'm glad you did. So she hates this, by the way. She doesn't want me to point her out. So I might do it again, though. But in terms of how she grew up, the perspective was anything new, especially music, was from the devil. Right? But after getting discipled at the Kansas City Baptist Temple and learning what the Bible teaches about worship, that we worship in spirit and truth, not in spirit and style. She came to learn that just because it is traditional 
doesn't mean that it's right. And just because it is contemporary doesn't mean that it's wrong. Now, the reverse is also true. Just because it is traditional doesn't mean that it's wrong. And just because it is contemporary doesn't mean that it's right. That's insignificant. What is significant is, is it in spirit and in truth, not my personal preference? At the end of the day, is it in alignment with this? If it's in alignment with this, I don't care about the style. As long as it is in spirit and in truth. Here's the other area that we're vulnerable to error in when it comes to worship, emotional. When we're too emotional, we worship how we feel as much as, if not more, than God himself. Uh, People have worked themselves into an emotional frenzy. Uh, singing a song, being part of a, some type of a worship service, and the, you know, everything is just going just right. It feels fantastic, but the song could not be more doctrinally incorrect, but they feel great. And God's like, I'm glad you feel great, but I'm not accepting any of that because it's not in spirit and in truth. It's in error. It's in spirit and in error. And it may not even be in spirit. Here's one. Uh, We can err in the area of being too intellectual. When we're too intellectual, we worship what we know about worship as much as, if not more, than God himself. This is where, yeah, I can take you to the word of God and I can teach you the doctrine of worship. I can show you what the Bible teaches about worship. But I'm not a true worshiper. But I know it. I can, I, I, I've got the doctrine down. But when my lips are moving, when I'm singing in a place like this, my heart is a million miles from God. And any one of those stems from us not being where we ought to be in worship in terms of getting it, not getting the heart, not getting the focus, not getting the theme. And so we err in these ways. And there are a number of episodes in scripture where you see the gravity of worship. And I wish I had more time to look at more of them, but I think we'll look at one tonight that I think will communicate very clearly just how weighty this is from God's perspective. We're familiar with the account in Leviticus chapter 10 with the sons of Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu who offered strange fire to God, and God was extremely displeased. And they were devoured on the spot. Now, as a father of two teenage children, I can't imagine losing one of them. We have a son, Ken, who's 18, our daughter, Bree, uh, she's 16. We miss them. We'll look forward to seeing them soon. But I can't imagine losing one of them. If you're here tonight and you've lost a child, let me just say, man, my heart goes out to you. And I do pray that you would know the grace and the mercy and the comfort of God every day about that. But to that, the Bible says that Aaron held his peace. And I can't imagine. And he was wise to have done so. Now, we fast forward to Leviticus 16, where God, through Moses, is giving Aaron, the high priest, very specific instructions that Aaron needed to hear very clearly 
and very carefully. There was absolutely zero room for there to be any misinterpretation of what God was communicating to Aaron through Moses. Leviticus 16, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered before the Lord and died. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Through Moses, God was letting Aaron know, you will not come in and out of here anytime you feel like it. Emotion. You, you will not come in here anytime you think, of, you, feel, you, you, you think you should come in here. Intellect. You're not going to get any ideas about, about having some kind of service, liturgical, where you're going to come in here and, and do some kind of ministry business. No, you'll come in one time, once a year, on the Day of Atonement. That's it. God was serious. This is serious. And if Aaron did not heed to those instructions, he would have died. Even in this dispensation... This is why the preparation for worship is so critical. We have to be careful. I can't imagine Aaron had to have been mourning the loss of his sons. We're not told, but I wonder if he was questioning if God was too harsh. Who's perfect, God? I mean, think about it. When God smote Uzzah in 2 Samuel chapter 6 for touching the ark... The Bible tells us that David was what? Displeased with that. Like, whoa, God, that was, hey, calm down, chill out, take it easy. God doesn't calm down. God doesn't chill out. God doesn't take it easy when it comes to worship. Whether, you know, Aaron thought that or not, here's what God thought. If Aaron made a misstep in his approach to the most holy place, he would have, met, he, he would have met the same outcome as his. Wow. Here's God who has, he struck down Aaron's, two of his sons. As a father, he had to, had to mourn that. And God doesn't offer an apology. Instead, it's very clear. If you don't heed to what Moses is communicating to you, the same thing will happen to you. <laughs> wow, God, I, I think you're pretty serious about this. We have an example of that with Herod the king, who would have been the grandson of Herod the Great in Acts chapter 12. Verses 21 through 23. And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. 
And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory. And he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. The people were obviously extremely impressed with Herod. You must have been a great orator. Because after he made his oration, the people shouted and praised, but not to God. And Herod, listen, crossed a line with God that I believe many of us are tempted to cross, and I'm afraid that some have. He gave not God the glory. Herod placed himself between God and glory that belongs to him alone. Just like we talked about last night with the museum guide. <laughs> Let me get in the way here. Let me share some of this. Let me actually steal some of it. Because of the position that we hold on this book, rightfully so, we place a very high premium on what we often refer to as good preaching. We like that, don't we? We love when the, the word of God is rightly divided and we love when it's preached you know, boldly with power and all those things. I've grown up hearing all of that. However, the preacher and the congregation must be very careful. Very careful. Because the preacher and the congregation can easily cross the line. This is where the congregation now offers glory to the preacher, not God. Over the years, I've seen it. People get very enamored with speakers and, 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 and they start skirting the line where it, it's, it's just, it, 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 I'll never forget, I was taught years ago in the Shepherd School of Ministry and it has stayed with me and I appreciate it. It said, look, respect godly men, but reverence God. Yes. We got to be careful. And if the preacher has become impressed with himself, then guess what he's going to do now? He's going to receive this glory that is being offered to him because he is so dynamic. Which now places him between God and what belongs to God alone, and that's glory. No thank you. <laughs> I don't want to be in that place. I'll pass. We should write this down. Listen, some leaders use their teaching platform to steal glory that belongs to God alone. Some pulpits have become high places of idolatry. We're week in and week out. Man, here he is in all of his preaching glory. So impressed. Ooh, ah, wow. Ho, ho. Where, listen, we get more impressed with the man than the book. Let me tell you, God is so good. And I'm thankful 
the Lord is faithful to teach and reveal things. I'm so thankful. One of the things that, that, that God has, has warned me of, and I'm thankful, and I, and I, um, I don't forget it, Do not become addicted to attention. Do not become addicted to attention. Dangerous. When you become addicted to attention, here's how you think. You think that it is very important for you to be heard and seen very often. Your name needs to be mentioned. People need to know who you are. You need to be preaching. You need to be up front and center. You need, you got to be seen and heard. That's the pride of life. And many have taken that bait to their detriment. The Bible shows us how foolish and dangerous that is. And would you notice that Herod's death was not kind? It wasn't merciful. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote that upon being smitten of God, though alive for five days, Herod's body rotted and was eaten of worms. That's a rough way to go, folks. And that is the trajectory when you and I place ourselves between God and glory that is his alone. We're going to lose massively, decisively, we should always pass on that. Only God knows how many, but I am certain that the reason that many churches are buried in a spiritual graveyard is because the preacher and the people of that church place the preacher between God and what belonged to him alone, glory, and God says, you're in borrowed time now. Week after week, <laughs> showering him with glory and praise and honor. I think I read where that should go. <laughs> and week after week, again, now he's addicted to it. He's addicted to the attention. He's addicted to just, whoa, wow, man, we, what we think of you. Listen, I understand the importance of great preaching, I appreciate it. I do. But here's what I've clearly observed. And I'm so glad that the Lord has allowed me to see this. If for no other reason that I don't get misguided. But listen, churches are not sustained by great preachers alone. They are not. Churches are not sustained by great preachers alone. There are churches who had exceptional preaching. Exceptional. I, we, I would even refer to it as wow preaching. The kind of preaching, man, that will lift you out of your seat. The kind of preaching that maybe uh, holds you spellbound. This man has you in the palm of his hand, right? That kind of preaching. But those churches are, to this day, as dead as this pulpit right here. And if they're not, they're on life support. Ultimately, listen, this is so critical. Ultimately, what sustains churches? 
are disciples indeed who make disciples indeed, 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 who make disciples indeed. indeed. That's what sustains churches. And praise the Lord, great preaching is a part of that. But that won't sustain a church alone. As a matter of fact, if a church is doing that, if it's making disciples indeed, who are making disciples indeed, guess what? Even when the man is removed or he passes on, guess what? It keeps going. I never want to be a part of a ministry that is, that is smaller than me. <laughs> it's got to be bigger than me. It's got to be something that only God can do. Listen, to be a dedicated house of worship to God, we must be dedicated to giving him all the glory. (laughs) All of it. (laughs) It's all yours. None of it is mine. I don't care if anybody knows who I am. I don't care. Listen, your name, my name, will never be higher or greater than the name that is above every name. (laughs) So let's just not be about that. That's just dumb. Sorry. Now, verse 9 brings us to our next critical observation about worship. And they drew out the staves of the ark, that the ends of the staves were... Seen from the ark before the oracle, but they were not seen without. And there it is unto this day. So this is obviously before the temple was destroyed and the Jews went into exile. But the staves were the poles that were inserted to the rings of the ark for transport. I think we get that. Now, some believe that because the ark now is no longer in need of transport, and now it has found a permanent place in the temple that these staves were no longer needed. And that is correct. And so they actually believe that the staves were actually taken out. And again, I, I, I can understand why some would arrive at that conclusion. I think, though, if we consider what we read in Exodus 25 and verse 15, it makes it very clear that these staves were not to be taken from it. They were not to be taken out. And if you read the language here in 2 Chronicles chapter 5 and verse 9, it's very clear that they drew them out. I think that's different from them taking them out. Now, ultimately, and again, if you think otherwise, it's okay. We're brothers, we're sisters, not worth fighting about. I'm just giving you my perspective based on what I gleaned, all right? But I do believe they were drawn out for, for two basic reasons. Number one, to serve as a guide for the high priest, right? So when he would come in to officiate his business, that these staves being drawn out would give him a guide to the mercy seat to do his priestly business, okay? But the second reason, I believe, in terms of just a takeaway is they were to serve as a reminder of what God had done for his people. Because again, that's always at the heart of worship who God is and what he's done for his people. 
So prior to this point, the ark did not have a permanent resting place. So whenever the Jews would move, the ark would move. So those stays being drawn out reminded Israel of their time in the wilderness and God's faithfulness to them during that time. So this brings us to what I believe is very critical, and that is the gratitude of worship. We have to see this. If the heart of worship is the total dedication of self to God in response to who he is and what he's done for us, then remembering what God has done for us should always move us to a place of gratitude. And it shouldn't just move us to a place of gratitude. It should keep us in that place. It should. We should dwell there. In the Old Testament, uh, the sacrifice of Thanksgiving, it was connected to the peace offering. And here's the thing about that that was very unique about the sacrifice of Thanksgiving was that it was purely voluntary. God didn't mandate it. But it was the response of someone who says, I just want to express thanks and gratitude to God for what he's done for me. Now, even if it is subconscious, the question that all of us should be dealing with this week is, am I a true worshiper? If I were a betting man, I would imagine the Holy Spirit has been dealing with each and every one of us about that question. Am I a true worshiper? And it is a question that is worthy of constant consideration. If you are a true worshiper, then here's what will be true of you. True worshipers of God, listen, are very thankful people. True worshipers of God are very thankful people. What God continually sees in their heart and hears from their lips in prayer and in their conversations is, thank you, God. I know as, from a parental perspective, this was something that uh, we worked on with our children when they were very young. I'll never forget it. Um, we, we had gone out, uh, we, had a, we had a great day, uh, we had taken them out, we, we saw a live show downtown Kansas City and just did all kinds of fun things and pizza and just you name it, we bought them stuff and it, it was just, praise the Lord, it was a great day. And we're driving on I-35 going back home. And I forget which one, it's probably both, but I forget which one, but one of them pipes up, hey, can we go do this and can we have that and this and there? And, uh, and I've heard stories like this, but I guess now this was my, my part to, to experience it. But, you know, I, I turn the radio off. A lecture's coming. <laughs> you know, when dad turns the radio off, you know, okay, somebody's in trouble. <laughs> yeah, somebody was in trouble. And I said, I'll tell you what, how about we do this? How about we just say, thank you, Lord, for a great day? 
How about we just tell God thank you for all the things that we got to do today and let's not ask for anything else. Okay. One of the things we do in ministry, we meet with people, we deal with people who are hurting and things like that, and praise the Lord. But I met with someone once, and it's been some years now, and they were murmuring and belly aching and challenging the love of God. God doesn't love me. If God loved me, then why hasn't he done this? He's did it for them. He's done it for them. He's done it over here. He hasn't done it for me. <sighs> Just accusing God. Subtly, of course, but definitely accusing God. So I asked, I said, I, you know, I want to ask you a question. Apart from Calvary, what would God need to do to persuade you that he loves you? I, I really like to know what that would be. That's all the proof you need. Listen, hey, listen, listen. If the only thing God ever did for us was Calvary, we would all be indebted to him from a place of gratitude for a thousand eternities. If it was just Calvary, Calvary is enough for me to be thankful every day, all the time. What else could God do? And if we're honest, he does so much more, doesn't he? Ungratefulness was a detrimental condition of God's people in the Old Testament. And in Laodicea, it is as detrimental. And listen... Right now, th th this is going to be a very, at least from my perspective, this is going to be a very sober moment. I think it should be. I really need you to, uh, I know you're already locked in, but can you lock in just a little bit more? Because you got to hear this, and so do I. Listen, <laughs> ungratefulness gets God's attention as much as gratefulness does. Ungratefulness, trust me, it gets God's undivided attention. Ungrateful, not thankful. God says, I see it. I have it on good authority that you do not want to get God's attention that way. I have it on exceptional authority. Numbers 14, 26, 27. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron saying, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation? Listen, which murmur against me. This is personal for God. They're murmuring against me. 
I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel, which they murmur against me. At this point, God had done plenty enough for them to be a very grateful people. Not to murmur against him, but to be a people who were full of praise and thanksgiving and gratefulness instead murmuring against him. Just wasn't enough. And instead of getting his attention through gratefulness, they got it through ungratefulness. And here's how God responded to that. The first generation that came out of Egypt didn't make it into the land, did they? And for every day that they searched the land, 40 days, they would wander in the wilderness for 40 years. You think ungratefulness gets God's attention? You better believe it does. One of the takeaways here is this, guys. Worship eliminates ungratefulness, but ungratefulness eliminates worship. You can't be a true worshiper and whine and complain and murmur against God. No way. They can't coexist. But if you're murmuring against God and you're complaining, here's what you've done. You've now put yourself between him and what is his, and that's his glory. God says, there is no glory for me in your murmuring and your ungratefulness. And listen, this is sober. From God's perspective, once worship has been eliminated in your life, what is the purpose of you having it? God says, every breath you take, the reason that you have air in your lungs, the reason that you have sight in your eyes, the reason that you have hearing in your ears, everything about you must be about me. The reason for your existence is my glory, not your vainglory. So if you think this whole thing is about you and what I owe you so that you can be happy, and because I'm not playing by your rules and, and, and I'm not doing what you want me to do, you're going to pout and whine and have a pity party and accuse me and all of that. What is the purpose of you having life? God says that brings me nothing. Ultimately, there are two grave realities about ungratefulness. Number one, listen, boy, please hear me. Listen. Ungratefulness accuses God. Ungratefulness accuses God. It does. Listen, ungratefulness says to God, listen, you haven't done enough for me to be grateful. You haven't been good enough. You haven't blessed me enough. Maybe if you did more, maybe if you answered all of my prayers, then I would be grateful. 
Help us, Lord. But the reality is, some of us are like the, one of the criminals on the cross next to Jesus. Luke 23, 39, and one of the, man, one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, if thou be Christ, save thyself and us. Here was Jesus dying for this criminal, dying for him, suffering for him, atoning for him. This guy was a genuine lowlife. And had the audacity to rail against Jesus, who was hanging on the cross for him. Wow. And some of us are like that. Listen, ungratefulness leads to a dark place. It leads to a dark place. Romans 1.21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. When they fell to glorify him as God, what do we read next? Neither were unthankful. And where did that lead? but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. This is dangerous. Very dangerous. Joshua instructed the leaders of the tribes of Israel to take a stone. And these stones were, be, were to be stones of memorial. So they could remind their children's children of what God had done for them. And so praise the Lord. I, I remember spending time with God and Joshua and, and reading that. And, and I was just led to have a journal at home. And, and so in that journal, uh, what I do is I, I, over the years, I just keep adding to it. But I, I draw, and I'm not a good artist. Um, we have some artists, Dan uh, Brandon, these are, they are professional artists, so I won't even show it to them because listen, I know these guys. If, if, if I showed it to them, they would give me a hard time until the rapture, okay? <laughs> they, they would just make fun of me and just dog me, okay? But it's between me and the Lord and my wife, so I'm good with it, okay? But in, in, in my best attempt, I, I draw these stones, and in these stones I write, there are certain things I write, you know, statements, dates, and I know exactly what they mean. And from time to time, I'll go and I'll just take that and I'll just look at those stones. And I'll just start praising the Lord and, and giving him thanks. Just about two weeks ago, Lori and I sat down and we just started uh, just, just looking at him. So let me just share some of that with you as I close tonight. Uh, one of the stones in that journal was June the 6th, 1994. <laughs> On a Monday night, I left a Bible study at the Kansas City Baptist Temple. And a man by the name of Dave Hill, he's a pastor at Harvest Baptist Church in, in Blue Springs, Missouri, invited me to his home. He sat me down at his kitchen table and he 
He, he, he gave me the gospel. And he led me to Christ that night. And after that, he spent the next year discipling me and, and, and feeding me the word of God. He's the only earthly father I've ever known. Praise the Lord. March 2002. Uh, man, that was, that was a crazy time, if you remember that. Um, that was after 9-11, you know, September 11th, 2001, and the economy tanked. But, 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 but I'm sitting in a conference at the Kansas City Baptist Temple, and this guy named Jeff Bartell is preaching. And he's a missionary to Albania, and he's talking about Albania. And, 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 I, and I just remember he said, you know, we never get visitors, so if you want to come, we'll love to have you. And I'm like, I, I'll go. And I'm like, man, I'll, I, hey, I'll just go, and I, maybe I can just sweep the floor. I can run errands for him whatnot. So I, I let it be known that I, I wanted to go, and Jeff and I had dinner, and we got to know each other. And then he goes, hey, why don't you come and and preach at our Bible conference. And I'm like, huh? Like, bro, you don't even know me. Well, he's wise. He, he did his homework, and I'm sure I, I, had, I had been approved. <laughs> so, but you know what? So we, we agree to that, and I'm all in, and I'm, I'm going to go and all that. And then the economy tanks, and I get laid off. And I get another job and take a massive pay cut. I'll never forget, I was reading through the Gospel of Mark, and I get there in chapter 11, and, and God's talking about faith, and, and if you believe, man, this mountain will be removed and cast into the sea. And, and that morning, I was going to email Jeff and go, hey, man, I'm sorry, things have changed, I'm not going to be able to make it. And then I read that, and God says, trust me. And God put me on a plane. God provided that ticket. And I'm telling you, that trip to Albania, it changed my life. September the 7th, 2002, on a very warm day in Blue Springs, Missouri, she became my wife. And it was a beautiful day. But let me tell you, the journey to that point was not very kind. It was tough. It's hard. We had some challenges, some things we had to overcome together and trust God for. But you know what? Man, God worked it all out, and it's all good. August 19th, 2004, our first child, Ken, is born in Winthrop Hospital on Long Island, Mineola, New York. He's born, and everything I thought was okay, and then I remember I was pumping gas, so I'm thinking I'm going to go pick up Lori. It's two days later. I'm going to get Lori and Cam. We're going to come home. She calls me and she says, get to the hospital right now. And I'm like, okay, what's up? Just She's crying, won't tell me anything. You got to tell me stuff. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, Lori, what's up? Just get here. Okay, I get there. And they've admitted Ken to the NICU. He was having problems breathing, and they're running serious tests. They discharged Lori, but we couldn't take Ken home. Doctor said, call us back later. We'll give you an update. <clears throat> Never forget, I called him. And right as I called him, um, they, were, they, were, uh, they, were, they were giving him a bone marrow. 
which is very painful for anybody, but especially an infant. And I remember to this day just hearing this awful scream. I could hear in the background. I said, hey, is that my son? And he hesitated, like, well, do I say it? Do I tell this guy not? And he goes, yes, I'm sorry. They're, they're giving him a shot. Let me tell you, he was in the NICU for a week, but you know what? And the Lord, the Lord saw him through. We brought him home a week later. You know what? We, we got pregnant with Bree, our beautiful little girl. And while Lori was pregnant, you know, she had, Bree had an irregular heartbeat. I remember being there for the sonogram. And we're sitting there, and you, you could see Bree's heart, right? It would... And I remember Lori crying. I'm like, okay, man, I got to be strong, but I want to cry too. <laughs> That's scary looking, man. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. Listen, when, when Bree was born, they, they, they took her out and, and they put her under the lamp and the guy had a, 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 a stethoscope. And I was standing right there and he, he put it up to her heart and he listened. And he listened. And he stepped back and he looked at me and he said, she's perfect. She's perfect. March 2010. Rough. Rough. Had a hard season. We were unexpectedly transitioning out of a place of ministry and Coming back to Kansas City, it was tough. Ken has asthma. He had a breathing machine. We had to do breathing treatments multiple times a day. One of the drugs that he used was Pomacort. I remember standing in the pharmacy and I didn't have a job. And I had a prescription. And I asked the pharmacist, how much would it cost to fill this without insurance? And he said, this will run you about $400, and this will last you about two weeks. As a father, I stood there. I was dripping in failure, in defeat, in worthlessness. What on earth have I done to my family? My, I'm like, Lord, he's got to have it. He's got to have it. But I don't have it. You know what God did? God says, I got you. You're my son. God provided a six-month supply for $10. That's what he did. Two thousand twelve. I get laid off again. You see a theme here? I'm a good worker, right, Sam? <laughs> Come on. I promise you, every layoff, it was economic. I wasn't the only one, okay? All right? My boss, I had, God gave me favor with my boss, and, and he was for me. He was letting me know, hey, this is coming. I'm doing everything I can to keep you. I really like you, but, man, it's just tough. He was even, uh, re- he was even setting up job interviews for me with, with people that he knew in, in the city. I got three job offers, and I couldn't take 
any one of them because each offer would have interfered with my family, my ministry to my family, or my ministry at MBT, and I said no. So it came, I got cut, and let me tell you, when I walked out of that company on that last day, the devil called me every kind of fool you can think of. What kind of man are you? Man, jobs are hard to come by, and you're turning down three. Who do you think you are? Where's your God now? I spent that Monday on my face in prayer and fasting, crying out to God. And on Tuesday, I met with a recruiter, and I was driving back home, and I get a phone call from a guy who says, hey, man, can we meet with you? We need some counseling. And I'm like, you need counseling. (laughs) (laughs) Bro, I don't have a job. (laughs) I need counseling. (laughs) I just turned down three of them. And I just sense the spirit of God prompt me, hey, take care of my sheep. Just trust me. And you know what? While I was meeting with that guy and his wife, the phone rang. And it wasn't just a ring, but I knew this, this was from the Lord. And I answered the phone, and it was a company that I had prayed like this was the job. And sure enough, it was that company saying, hey, we want to offer you. I was like, yes. 2016, man, for about a year and a half, Lori was having some medical challenges, and, and it got to a point where it's like, okay, we, we got to do a pretty major surgery here. You know what, man, the Lord took care of it, took care of my wife. She's all good. How about, how, about, how about May of 2017? I'm sitting down with Sam Miles for breakfast. I've been praying and trusting God for this, and we're having breakfast in Kansas City. Sam says, hey, I want to bring you on staff. Listen, I'm living a dream. Being, a, being on staff at Midtown as a pastor under Sam, with Sam, with the guys I get to serve the Lord. Are you kidding me? You guys are like, dude, when are you going to stop? Like, listen, I'm getting my praise on. Are you kidding me? You know what I think? I think some of you, I think what you're hearing from the Lord is you need to, you need to think about how you're going to memorialize how good God is. Maybe, maybe you're very creative, and, and you, but you, you got to figure it out where that is constantly before you, that it, it, it prompts you, it motivates you, it stirs you to just say, thank you. Look at what he did. Look over here. Look over there. Look over there. Look over there. Look over there. And look over there. That'll keep you from murmuring. Father, you're worthy. You're worthy of our gratitude. You have certainly proved it, and you've earned it. In Jesus' name. Amen. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.